This is Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. A window to the Latin universe. Stanford 90.1 FM. Ryan Atenea Americana. This is Atenea Americana. Bilingual house of culture. On the air and online. Ryan Atenea Americana. Su casa de la cultura en la radio y online. Para la radio 90.1 KCSU Stanford. I am Isabel Juves. Isabel Juves. Bienvenidos. Atenea Americana. Welcome. Bienvenidos. From Stanford to the world. Welcome again to Atene Americana, and today we are talking with uh, Dr. Uh, Michelle Barry. She is the, sorry, Barry or Barry? Barry. Barry, okay. And today we are talking with Dr. Uh, Barry, and she is the incoming board chair. She is, sorry, she is the board chair of the Consortium for uh, Universities for Global Health. Uh, and uh, well, she is also um, part of the Stanford body, uh, and uh, we are very, very uh, grateful to have her here. She is in the middle of all this craziness and the pandemic, and everybody in uh, health is super overworked and super stressed doing one million things. She has taken some time to talk with us about this, so thank you very much. My pleasure. So can you tell us a little bit about your organization and your work? Mm -hmm. Glad to. I run the Center for Innovation in Global Health at Stanford. Uh, and I myself am a professor of medicine and also tropical diseases. Uh, I've been involved in emerging diseases for over 30 years. Um, but this is something real time that we're living through that's quite different. Yes, and uh, it, there is um, also important uh, to have, even here, uh, a big head of tropical diseases because with so much mobility in the world, uh, there are not, I don't know if there are like diseases that we can contain in some particular geographic plane, like it was before, like there were some diseases that were mostly on the tropic or on the Caribbean or on the tr African topic, but right now it's like everywhere, everything. When, when you have billions of people getting on flights and moving um, quite quickly throughout the world, what is usually a contained um, small epidemic rapidly becomes a pandemic. Um, and, and the word pandemic um, really implies that it's infecting more than one continent and there's sustained transmission. Um, we saw Ebola um, a couple of years ago Um, really focus in on just a geographic area with some spillover and not sustained um, transmission. So that was not a pandemic. It was a scary epidemic, um, and it continues to be an epidemic. Um, we've sort of lost sight on this um, because it's one of the countries we don't spend a lot of time talking about, but there's still Ebola going on in the DRC in Africa. So we're not over that small epidemic. And that's been quite hard for Africa because as COVID-19 hits, they're still dealing with other um, epidemics, whether it be Ebola or yellow fever or humanitarian crises, um, they're having trouble. And we're seeing right now a large tropical storm about to hit Bangladesh and India um, and, and 
I think it's interesting to think at how these um, in impressive weather events can really amplify pandemic infection. Yeah, I bet the, the heat and the humidity don't won't help. Well, it's unclear what heat and humidity does. Mm -hmm. um, that has not been at all settled out because the, the virus itself has spread in hot and humid places like Australia in the summer and Singapore. So mm -hmm. it's unclear how heat and humidity and seasonality will play out with this virus. But what is clear is when you have an extreme weather event, uh, it's hard to shelter people together. Yeah. So in, in the last few years, we had uh, quite a few scares uh, and different epidemic with pro that were dangerous, very dangerous for humankind. Ebola, one of them. Then we have the uh, people got scared about the H1N and uh, the swine it's influenza. Yeah, the influenza and the swine. A couple of years ago, Zika. Yes, the Zika was very bad. But somehow I, I remember that there was some sort of international consensus. And I, I remember hearing a lot about uh, U.S. or international bodies of doctors going where it was and trying to contain it. And uh, I feel that there was more consensus in general. And uh, somehow they didn't get to this extreme. We have so many deaths in a couple of months all around the globe. Uh, and even in United States. So it never got to United States or was so big or to the center of Europe. It wasn't disproportionate. So what has changed that now is, is this global thing that even though we were scared about this before, is now when we're having it? I think what's happening now and why this has all become amplified is we're just not acting together as a world. We're not... Um, We're ignoring global governance. We're, we're weakening our WHO. I mean, I think it's um, horrible that the United States is pulling out their funding from the World Health Organization. That's the one organization where we could have global dialogue and actually address this pandemic together. It is the one organization which has really put out international health regulations, which um, really to strengthen countries that can't do surveillance. It's really important to have surveillance so that we know when there's an outbreak and prevent that outbreak from spreading. Over five million people flew out of Wuhan, China, before um, there was any clampdown on travel mm -hmm. and after the recognition that there was an unusual pneumonia happening in that area. Mm -hmm. so, so you can imagine if you have five million people flying out, how quickly that could spread around the world. So we need better surveillance. We need better reporting. And I, I think the organization that's best could address this would be the WHO. Mm -hmm. So instead of taking money away from it, we should be putting more money into it. And even before, there was the um, last time we had a big epidemic coming out of China. I remember that there were some people that were supposed to stay there, international viewers, and they were supposed to be there to to for check and balances to see how everything was going. Uh, but they were removed a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, and and I can only talk for our folks, the CDC, mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. CDC was actually removed from China, but not because of the Chinese, um, because of Trump cutbacks in funding. Mm. Um, so we had an opportunity to be there and be on the ground and help, um, and that wound up not happening. Mm. I mean, again, 
we need organizations like the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, to be really placed in a federal level. Right now, the CDC is very weak. Um, it, it does not give guidelines to a state unless it's invited in. Um, in fact, it, the federal government right now is not even listening. As you heard of the last couple of weeks, they, they, the, the CDC spent a lot of time thinking about guidelines of reopening schools and how to reopen the economy um, and small businesses and what should be the distancing and how, how we can do this safely. And that has been ignored. What could be done right now in internationally as a, as a global body to to make this better? Because I think like everybody is by their own, even inside the United States, like every state is by their own. They, everybody does whatever they feel like doing uh, and even worse globally. So what should Isabel, be... You're, Isabel, you're totally right. Mm -hmm. It should not be everybody on their own. Yeah. Um, it, it, even in the states, the counties by counties are making their own rules. I don't know if you know that. The yeah. county does not, has, can trump what the governor says mm -hmm. um, and can make their own rules. We need a uniformed, uh, a uniform, uh, not necessarily with uniforms, <laughs> but a uniform public health service. Um, I think there are a couple bills now that are pending um, in the, uh, I know because I've been working with Senator Durbin and Senator Feinstein's office on bills to have a global health core of doctors and nurses that can be uh, called upon in a surge and also a core to do contact tracing and quarantine. In order to reopen, we need to have tremendous amount of testing and contact tracing and quarantine or we're going to see a lot more deaths. Mm -hmm. I think we started to see this. I don't know if you've been following what's happening in Texas. Mm -hmm. When Texas, um, um, I think it was um, early April or April 15, two weeks ago, mm -hmm. uh, they relaxed their, uh, and they reopened their society. Mm -hmm. um, and we're starting to see a huge surge of deaths um, exactly two weeks afterwards, which is what you'd expect, the incubation period for this virus. Hmm. Yeah, and right now in California, which has been very uh, conservative, opening things, now they're starting in something they call phase two, but then Every county has uh, different stats and is making their own decisions when to open, depending on how well they are doing. That's right, but the guidelines, I think, are very reasonable that uh, Governor Newsom has given. Yeah. Um, he, he has asked, it used to be um, that it was you, you could reopen if you had less than one case per 10,000 and no deaths for two weeks. Uh, he stepped back a little bit from that. And now it's if you have less than 5% new hospitalizations mm -hmm. um, and you can have no more than 20 hospitalizations over two weeks. Um, so he's, he's letting it be a little bit more liberal mm -hmm. to reopen the economy. But we'll see how that goes. This is, we're watching science and public health in real time. Yeah. We're watching population health in real time. Yeah, which is... Uh Global uh, health and medicine, obviously they are by the hand of each other, but they are not the same thing. One of them also has to do with the statistic and population and the big picture. The other one is patient by patient. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. I mean, and, you know, I think they both go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. I think uh, to have really good patient care, you need to think about prevention and large population issues. Um, I think I don't think you can do one without the other. 
Um, the thing about the U.S. is we we spend the most on healthcare. I mean, we spend you know thousands of dollars per person on healthcare, um, and yet our health outcomes are not as good as uh, countries that spend very little per capita, but spend a lot of time on prevention and on public health. Yes, the thing about the pricing of medicine in U.S. will be a whole topic. Why? That's a whole other topic. <laughs> a whole other topic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, yes, I suppose right now I mean, we, is... We have same. great research and great science. We yeah. have terrible public health uh, infrastructure. Yeah. We have a patchwork. We have it state by state, county by county, no national level health care. Yeah, and then and I think we're seeing research. that. Yeah. And then so we're, we're seeing the bad effects of that. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and then after all the science and, and all the logic, then there is another a market insurance behind that and mess up everything together. And we're seeing, um, we don't have the safety nets that other countries have. Um, so we're seeing the inequities played out. We're seeing Latino and African-Americans being much more prone uh, to getting COVID-19 because we don't have the safety nets there. Mm -hmm. We're not providing the care that we should be providing, the testing. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly, I suppose, other than, well, because they are minority also, uh, is more about poverty levels. It's affecting the poorest the most. It's, it's poverty level, but it's food access, access to good, healthy food. Mm -hmm. um, so they wind up having a higher level of diabetes and hypertension, which are two risk factors for COVID-19 deaths. Mm -hmm. When you have a population that have those risk factors, yeah. you're going to have more deaths in that population. So, it, well, let's just come back to the probably the obvious, but uh, what can be done right now to lower or get rid of this? And what should we expect until we feel that we're safe again? Well, I think we have to, you know, we're lucky. I'm going to, I'm going to adjust my comments to California. Mm -hmm. I think we're very lucky that we have a, a very rational governor and excellent um, county officials. So I think we need to listen to them. Um, I think as a world, um, we have to remember that this is really about planetary health and not nationalism. Mm -hmm. This can't be about country by country. Um, it really has to be about the collective good for the entire world. Now that becomes hard to do when your citizens are dying very much. But I think when the dust settles from this, we need to have a very um, serious conversation about global governance and shared governance, about threats that cross borders. It's not, and I, I will say it's not only pandemic diseases, it's what about climate? That transcends borders. Pollution transcends borders. So there are certain existential threats that we need to address as a planet. One of the things mm -hmm. is we need to vote in oh, November definitely. so that we have someone that believes in public health and listening to public health officials and listening to evidence-based science. The fact that he's taking a drug now that has no evidence yet for protection is a terrible example. Mm -hmm. um, for our population. We need someone that believes in evidence-based science. 
Yeah, and then I have credible sources of information coming. Like, and then I, I can just think about those those uh, the couple that decided they read that their fish tank had the same chemical that the president was talking about, and they decided to drink it. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, that was a ridiculous statement to talk about using disinfectant. <laughs> to, to, it's a ridiculous statement. <laughs> um, to cure COVID-19. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, Deborah Burks, who was sitting next to him, should have corrected him. I, I feel like if Tony Fauci was there, he would have corrected him. And unfortunately, Tony has, I, I, Dr. Fauci has been sort of sidelined. We haven't heard from him. Yes, uh, probably not yeah. on his fault. Who knows? But that's the problem with you. You start putting veils into what is new, what is science, what is real, and what is not. That you don't really know what is behind curtains anymore. Like you cannot even trust. Like is he not talking because he doesn't have anything to say, or because they don't let him talk? Or well, I think the countries that have done really well uh, with this virus are countries that have had good communication, have had public health at the top. When you look at how Taiwan has controlled it, and Singapore, and even South Korea, Korea. Um, it, you know, you don't have to look to China mm -hmm. if you want to say, oh, it's not a democracy, but you had democracies like Taiwan um, and South Korea that were very able um, to control it, and they did it by very unified messaging at the top, mm -hmm. lots of good testing and contact tracing, and we have good examples of how you can reopen and then reopen your society. Unfortunately, um, that's not happening in the U.S. Yeah, we, we started the same time as, or the same day as South Korea, and they already controlled it, and we're not right. anywhere close. And that's then right. New Zealand is also in good shape right now because they were very strict from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And they're using creative ideas. Um, and and that's a great, um, I love this story, uh, Jacinta Arden, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, went out to dinner with her husband. And she went to a restaurant, and because there were too many people and it wasn't socially distanced, they turned her away. Yeah. So that would never happen in the U.S. I mean, it shows that they have a very egalitarian and following the rules, even to their prime minister. Yeah. Um, and she was happy and walked away. Um, but uh, they're trying creative ideas about maybe having a travel bubble mm -hmm. between New Zealand and Australia, because they've both been able to control it. Um, we need to think creatively, and I, unfortunately, we're we're behaving like individual states or um, conglomerations of states. It looks like uh, Washington, Oregon, and California are working, thank goodness, together. There was, um, yeah, but as summer star, we might we might start having a. people who comes from vacation to from the other states. It's going to be very hard. I agree. So I don't know if maybe... I very agree. It's going to yeah. be hard to get on a plane if you don't know who's on that plane. Yeah. And yeah, it's but... clear that, you know, there is an aerosol transmission component to this virus. Yeah, but people from other states that have high contagion, they can just come to, I don't know, to the beach in the West right. in the next right. couple of months and right. mess up with their numbers. Fortunately, <laughs> it's better to be outside. Yes. And in a confined space, I think the bigger risk will be in confined spaces with these people. Mm -hmm. So uh, right now, the the best thing we can do is keep following the, the those uh, social distancing, yeah. washing our hands, uh, masks yeah. for everybody. 
Yes, I'm a big believer of mass. If you look mm -hmm. at the uh, data um, and look at the countries that have done well, they're countries that are used to wearing masks. Mm -hmm. They wear masks um, both for protection and prevention. Mm -hmm. um, particularly if you're an asymptomatic person, you're not infecting someone else. Um, but it looks like it, the mask also can um, have a little bit of barrier if somebody's sneezing or aerosolizing around you as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm a big believer of masks. Yeah, so that's good. So, uh, two and social ago, distancing. Yeah. So a few months ago, uh, when everything started, I remember I had some, just a little bit like for my family, of masks from the that I bought from the fire from two years ago. I had some left yes, that yes. I kept because yes. of the fire. But then at the beginning, there was like, well, maybe I should think about just giving them, taking them to the hospital instead because those those people are the ones who need it most. So let's let's stay for a few for a couple of weeks to see what's going on. And now they are like telling us, no, you should wear them instead. So that's right. I suppose that's right. Hospitals are doing pretty well with PPE. Mm -hmm. I think we've uh, we've raised the level of personal protection equipment mm -hmm. um, at the hospital. So, uh, particularly in California, our hospital is very quiet now. Mm -hmm. We do not have many COVID nineteen patients at all. We tested eleven thousand healthcare workers, mm -hmm. and only point four percent were positive, mm -hmm. uh, and only like two and a half three percent, two point six percent had antibodies. So, I mean, we do not have a lot of virus um, in this particular Santa Clara area. Mm -hmm. And they are talking about raising uh, to 4,000 a day, 4,000 tests a day in the county? That's what I heard. Yes, yes. We're, we're ramping up. I don't know the exact number. Mm -hmm. So uh, that will, uh, well, definitely make us all safer. But uh -huh. uh, when uh, do you think... Uh, they say at the beginning that it might take up to 18 months to, to actually have a vaccine and then make everybody get the vaccine. Uh, has those well, there's numbers one changed? good thing um, mm -hmm. that came out of one of the vaccines, Modena. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's the name of the company. They've done phase one trial and all eight people did develop antibody. Um, and they developed antibody to the low dose, the medium dose and the high dose. So it looks like they won't even need the high dose. But it looks as if um, they will probably need a booster, you know, mm -hmm. one dose and then a, a, another dose in four to six weeks. Um, but this this is not going to come out for another, you know, even though phase one mm -hmm. looks very good, that first eight people, it's still going to be many, many months before mm -hmm. we see it out as a product. Oh, okay. You have to go through a larger testing of people. You have to see if there's side effects. Um, so it's, it's going to take a while. Okay. Well, um, sorry to be depressing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know yeah, there's a lot of creativity me. that's going on um, within this virus times. You know, we're, it is a unique time. I don't. I think that it's. We will not forget 2020. <laughs> yes, and uh, yeah, and all the students they they want to go back, but you know, is is it going to be safe? So. Are we going to I think Sanford, Sanford is spending a lot of time thinking about it. Yeah. Um, if if they decide to open up the university, they'll do it in a safe way. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of uh, people thinking about it. Um, I'm on calls where you know everyone from the janitorial staff to the professors are talking about how we could do it safely. Mm -hmm. So Good. there are some schools that have said they're still staying online in the fall. We haven't made our decision yet. 
Okay. Yeah, because a, a lot of the things that you cannot do it online, yet there are a lot of labs and, and things that are actually person to person. You need That's to right. be somewhere to. That's right. Yeah. But if you can do labs with social distancing and sanitizing, we may be able to do it. Yes. That's good. So. And large classes can maybe be done in tents so that we can social distance um, or cut them into different, you know, not, have them not be large classes, but have different sections. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. maybe a way. All of this is being addressed, as is testing. So there may be as students says they come back in. Hmm. We'll see how it goes. So there there might be like uh, testing the students in order to come back to person to person right. class or something like that. Yeah. yeah, with frequent testing. If testing becomes point of care, yeah. we we may be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Another well, it's more like a silly day to day question, but uh, when I had swabbed before for the flu. Uh, over the years, like once, but or and my son had another one, but you know, it's just swapping the nose or in the mouth. But I see the swapping for the coronavirus is like almost to the brain. Why does it need to be in the back and so uncomfortable? Yeah, yeah, I think you're gonna see easier tests come out. That's called a nasal pharyngeal when they go up really high to the yeah. back um, and they do the little twists. Uh, right now, uh, it looks like a, a, a swab in the middle of your nose is just as good as the one going up to the brain. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. And, and there are even saliva tests where you'll be able to spit. I'm not sure those are as sen sensitive as mm -hmm. the, um, but it looks like the middle of your nose uh, will probably be adequate. Okay. Yeah, because the, the other one is like really hard. If you're going to be doing that to all the students, it's... Yeah, it's painful. I know. Yeah. I know. Okay. <laughs> I've had it done. I've had it done, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, uh, thank you okay. very much for your time. Is there any any uh, last words you want to tell to, well, the students and population and on all the people who might be hearing this show? Yeah, I, my last words would be that we need as a world to work cooperatively with each other. We need to help each other do surveillance we need to pay attention to our animal health because all of these diseases that have become pandemic are spillover from animals, whether it be HIV, whether it be flu, whether it be something like Ebola or now um, COVID-19. We need to, it, it's just a travesty that research on uh, corona bat, coronavirus bats has been stopped. We need to actually um, put money into good research of surveillance as a global initiative, not country by country or state by state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, like the things for the, they call it the wet markets where they have live animals living on top of each other. Or even right. here, I will say, before we heard a lot of problems with um, uh, Places where they they you know produce meat that are really really overcrowded and that might you know may bring diseases to the people and and particular right. because the people who conceive right the, there may be a live animal spilling virus there mm -hmm. or vice versa there could be a human spilling virus to the animal mm -hmm. um, but we need to do surveillance we have to understand why it starts in those wet markets we need to study that. Mm -hmm.
Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, no problem. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. Y esto es Atenea Americana. Y yo soy tu anfitriona, Isabel Juvés. Puedes encontrar este y todos mis shows en stanfordhispanicbroadcasting.org. Este es un show bilingüe cultural que te trae una ventana al universo latino e hispano. Cada semana por dos horas, una en inglés y otra en español, desde Stanford hacia el mundo. Recuérdate que también puedes ser parte de esto dejándome tus comentarios, compartiendo tus pensamientos y algo más en stanfordhispanicbroadcasting.org. Te espero ver ahí. about new and old methods of education. 
or guest stock from Stanford University and from the University of Texas in San Antonio. And they are Dr. Belinda Flores, Department Chair and Professor of Bicultural Bilingual Studies at the University of San Antonio, and Dr. Lorena Kleis, Executive Director of the Academy of Teacher Excellence, also located at the University of Texas. And here at the station, I have Dr. Linda Prieto, also PhD, who just relocated to Palo Alto and had been assistant professor at the same Texas University. She was also part of the Nepo One Sinsin project. The specific topic of our discussion today is the learning of ancient methods of understanding mathematics that was developed by pre-Columbian tribes for millennia and today can be reused to advance and facilitate the comprehension of simple and complex concepts through a graphic and logic way. The Nepo One Sin Sin project had proven that kids in preschool can understand easily concepts of addition, subtraction, multiplication, and even the square root with this method in a playful way. At the same time, college students from computer science had found their methods helpful in facilitating binary numbers concepts and applications. Stay with us to learn a little bit more about this. talking from Stanford with a guest that just arrived from the University of Texas in San Antonio, and we're actually talking with some of her uh, teammates over there. Uh, Linda is going to introduce us a little bit about her project and uh, her guest. Okay, so the project uh, belongs to the University of Texas at San Antonio, and so with us on the phone from San Antonio are both Dr. Belinda Flores, who's the chair of the Department of Bicultural Bilingual Studies in the College of Education and Human Development there, as well as our colleague, Dr. Lorena Kleist, and she's the executive director of the Academy for Teacher Excellence there at UT San Antonio as well. And so this is where the Nipo Wansing Sing After School clubs live. And so I just had the fortune of being on the original planning and design team with them there in San Antonio. Uh, but have since made the move here to Stanford and to the Bay Area and hoping to start clubs here as well. Um, so I think if we have Dr. Gleis begin by telling us a little bit about how the clubs came to be um, through UT San Antonio. Basically, uh, here at uh, San Antonio, uh, we were looking for uh, culturally uh, responsive curriculum pedagogy for our mathematics and secondary level teachers about uh, 10 years ago, and that's how we started uh, learning about the Nepo-Wai-Sin-Sin as a type of uh, ethnomathematic to integrate in the teacher uh, preparation program. And over uh, the years, the project has expanded, and in addition to using the Nepo-Wai-Sin-Sin project as a component for the teacher preparation program, we started uh, taking it to the local 
uh, school districts to implement it as an informal learning opportunity for children in the community and also to give opportunities to our undergraduate uh, teacher candidates to work uh, with children in uh, high-need uh, schools. And for also our teacher candidates um, to feel stronger in the areas of mathematics, because if we look at the research of teacher preparation, unfortunately, uh, mathematics and science continue to be the two areas in which most of our uh, teacher candidates feel the least prepared in. So it was really purposeful in wanting these um, future uh, elementary school teachers to feel better about themselves in the areas of mathematics uh, by serving as mentors to the children participating in these after-school clubs. And so then those teacher candidates were coming, uh, enrolled in my course, and then serving as volunteers. You are from the um, education department. You are from the education department at the university. That's your background. It's not in the math department. Uh, so you are actually trying to make a, a method for people easier to, to learn. Yes. We're, uh, the Academy for Teacher Excellence is uh, housed in the College of Education and Human Development here at the university. And uh, we work uh, here through our college, uh, we prepare teacher candidates for all levels. And as uh, Linda uh, mentioned, this project is uh, twofold. It has been uh, the after-school club as an informal learning has been designed to improve the students' uh, capacity to learn uh, mathematics. And that's uh, not only the children in the schools, but also for our teacher candidates, uh, the ones that are not majoring in mathematics. I'm just going to say that we work very closely with the Department of Mathematics and the College of Science and College of Engineering here at UTSA. You are applying this method to all levels of education. You are putting it to new learners in kindergarten or preschool. You are also applying it to a curriculum for secondary education, and you're also applying it for some college students. Uh, yes. Explain a little bit to uh, our audience, as I understand it uh, from outside. It's a graphic uh, way to see uh, math and see numbers. It's a decimal system. It can also be work is, um, in, in the 20th, uh, not just in the 10th uh, system. Uh, and it also is an ancient method that understood the zero in a very early age, way before Rome Empire was actually using the zero system. So it's uh, completely adaptable to our our math today, and uh, it can be applied in any way in our learning. Uh, yes, the uh, Nepal-Wall-Sinsing is an uh, an instrument, an ancient an ancient tool. Uh, developed and used uh, by pre-Columbian Mesoamerican uh, people, by the Mayans, the Nahua, the Aztec societies, and it was used uh, for calculation and accounting, and uh, that's uh, what we're uh, doing here. Uh, we're uh, trying to bring the, this uh, ancient uh, knowledge and what we call here uh, the sacred knowledge for the the students, uh, the young uh, elementary level, uh, the middle level, secondary level, and at the university, uh, to understand how uh, mathematics was used uh, as part of uh, the, the these uh, Mesoamerican people's uh, daily life 
um, uh, yes, it's an instrument that can be uh, very easily um, uh, used. The students uh, have opportunities to learn uh, using the baseband system because that's what is uh, used here in the United States. Older, uh, right now we don't have any students at the at the high school uh, level, uh, but we're working with a colleague, Everardo Lara Gonzalez from Mexico City, and they're already developing the curriculum to start teaching the algebra, uh, uh, trigonometry, uh, calculus uh, at more advanced uh, levels. Did people in the ancient times, everybody used to learn this or it was used for the most rich people or the merchants or the priests, the high level people in the society, or this was a common method for everybody? Well, it was uh, a, a common method for everybody because they used, they used it in their daily life, Go, going to, to the market where when they were doing their trading and doing their counting, they, the instrument that they had was like, like a bra- it was a mobile device. It was a bracelet that they were uh, wearing to do their calculations. But uh, like any society, uh, you're uh, more rich, affluent uh, individuals were the, the first ones uh, utilize uh, this instrument. But we have uh, learned from uh, Everardo is uh, being used for the calculations of uh, daily, uh, you know, from basic, very basic uh, operations to more uh, sophisticated calculations. There were only, like, the royal or the, the people who hold, held higher status were the ones that were educated in, in the mathematics. And also, they were the ones um, either creating these instruments or creating these different ways of using it because they, they use the scientific method and the power of observation to create these different instruments. Everything's based on the observation of the cosmos. And so it was a more learned society that created these instruments and utilized them. Yes, the common day, everyday people use them, but not necessarily were they either educated or creating these instruments. And also the design of the instruments would have been different. As Lorena was saying, you know, folks at the market might have the everyday mobile device uh, of the bracelet where, you know, the accountants for those in power would have an instrument uh, where the counters were made out of precious stones. Um, and the, the instrument that we have today is a very uh, affordable, um, very easy to reproduce instrument that's uh, mostly plastic with some metal uh, beams to hold it in place about, you know, 13 inches long. Uh, if held uh, horizontally and about maybe four inches uh, tall. That would sit nicely on a desk or on a table. Remember that this is Atenea Americana, 
and that you can find this and all my shows at standforhispanicbroadcasting.org. And the topic today is the Nepo One Sinsin project. And for that, we're talking with Dr. Belinda Flores, Dr. Lorena Clay, and Dr. Linda Prieto from the University of Texas at San Antonio. Stay with us to learn a little bit more about this ancient method of understanding mathematics. Also developing this uh, little uh, Mayan abacus, we could call it, in a digital way. You are also developing new tools for the new generation so they can actually have apps or they can use it in different ways wherever they go. Yes, we have this uh, virtual Nepal Simsing. We had a group of uh, students from the Department of Computer Science that design this virtual uh, Nepal Walsinsin. It's a web-based Nepal Walsinsin right now uh, that anybody uh, can access online. One of our goals is uh, to create an app as well that can be used. That way, everybody can have access in any type of uh, mobile device. Math is always a part of life, not just, you don't just specialize in that, but it's also part of your philosophies, your daily life, of your belief, even religious belief. Can it, it just sneak everywhere on life, science and even games? And uh, you already told that uh, it was also applied to study astronomy, uh, but it's also a little bit of other logic games that they used to play, and you're actually applying that in the classrooms. Can you talk a little bit about uh, other ways how you are applying these methods for the teaching of logic and the teaching of traditions, the games you were talking before for the kids? Yeah, Lorena, if you can give a little overview of the after-school clubs, maybe the listeners will have a better idea of what happens during that hour or two hours after school and yeah, uh, the so, different materials yeah. the students are exposed to. Uh, the Nepal Sitting Project as an informal learning club provides opportunities for uh, children from uh, the elementary schools to meet once a week for about an, an hour to two hours. And they, in uh, during that time, they have... Uh, about uh, 20 minutes that they uh, dedicate on uh, working, manipulating, using the Nepal Simsing to uh, to learn uh, just uh, basic calculations and these uh, range from successive addition to uh, subtraction, multiplication, uh, division, and uh, doing uh, square uh, roots where they have uh, both uh, the replica of the ancient Nepal Sensing and they can utilize the virtual Nepal Sensing. Then they have about 20 to 30 minutes where they are learning the culture, uh, the history, uh, the, the language, not only uh, the Spanish language, but also the Nahuatl language. In a fun, interactive way, uh, we have um, games uh, that have been integrated for the children where they, uh, some of the games can be uh, board games like uh, La Pitarra, others are more uh, kinesthetic. 
like that temalashtas uh, plastic, or we have other traditional toys and games that many of our uh, Latino uh, Mexican American uh, communities are familiar with, such as uh, el trompo, el valero, uh, la loteria. Let me jump in real quick. So to give you the example of the loteria, so when our team formed. Um, gosh, a year ago already this past May to design the pilot, uh, I was working with the games in particular. And so I wanted a game that the children would already likely be familiar with. And so in largely Latino or Mexican-American homes, uh, many of us are exposed to Loteria. And we grow up playing which Loteria, is kind of like a bingo which too. is kind of like a bingo here in the U.S., but based on images and, and not so much numbers. And so what I did was I, I found words that are commonly spoken in the U.S. in Spanish, which we would say have a Mexican origin, but in reality have an origin to the Nahuatl language. And so then on the card with the image, you will have the nice graphic that's been designed by the team at UTSA in Ate. And then you'll have the word in English, you'll have the word in what would be called Mexican Spanish, and then the original Nahuatl word. And so that children even at in preschool or at the kindergarten level who may not be fully literate yet and can't read the words can recognize the image nonetheless. And then our acquiring it in Spanish and or English and then Nahuatl as well, which is really fun and, and sometimes a bit of a challenge for our teacher candidates who tend to be monolingual English speakers. But it's a way to, again, get them out of their comfort zone and get them to see themselves as learners, not just the children. And also some other games that are more physical, like uh, the hopscotch. Yeah, so the Malacatli is, is the closest equivalent to the Malacatli would be hopscotch, although it's much more physically challenging uh, than, the, than hopscotch is. And it's also, uh, again, has a philosophical component that would, you know, take us a little bit too long to explain today, but that has connections to the heavens and ascending as a as an individual. Um, and so those uh, learning opportunities become really important, again, for children who maybe haven't thought uh, of themselves as strong in mathematics or haven't been given an opportunity to, to think broadly about how mathematics influences our everyday life. Uh, Lorena, if you want to talk about the... The labyrinth? Uh, yes, the labyrinth that we have developed. We wanted to, in keeping up with, uh, you know, the latest uh, developments uh, on uh, technology, we wanted to have uh, an, an interactive um, game-like activity for the children. So we have this uh, labyrinth where the children go on an excursion to explore uh, the pyramids. And we have a, 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 me, a Mesoamerican map with uh, three uh, pyramids. Each one of the pyramids has a, a different level to uh, accommodate the learning needs of the various children that we have at, at different uh, grade levels. So they have some activities that are developmentally appropriate for the different grades or we, we don't want to box the children for, uh, as grade level. So we give uh, the, the activities that we have, we have it in, in cycles. So uh, cycle one, they go to the first pyramid and they're going to find the different a snake that wraps around the, the steps of uh, the pyramid. And the scales of the snake has the numbers of the different uh, activities. So uh, as the children are going up the pyramid, they can uh, select one of th those numbers and they're going to have some problems for them 
to solve. And now these uh, math problems have been designed and aligned to the state standards. So we're we're uh, continuing to support the school districts and the state curriculum, but in this uh, virtual, informal way where uh, the children, they look at it as, oh, it's a game. We're going, uh, we're going to go online and play this game. So they're doing mathematics utilizing the instrument they can use the replica of the ancient uh, Nepal wall sensing or uh, the virtual uh, Nepal to solve some of these problems. Now for older children we also have a little uh, journal, a little uh, notebook that they use to keep notes. So they're they're taking notes as they're going, they're solving uh, the problem and they're making observations because one, as they're moving from uh, one level to the next, they're uh, col- collecting all these field notes, these observational notes that are that that are going to help them to solve other math problems that they're going to encounter later on on their journey. So they go through these different levels until they finish and they have some additional game and fun activities in be- in between uh, their journeys from one level to the next. So and and all of this is part of the the scientific method as well. This Nepal Sensing Ethnomathematics project is very interdisciplinary. It's an integrative approach where uh, we see that the children are developing that mathematical and scientific uh, skills in, in a fun, informal way. This is Atenea Americana, and I am your host, Isabel Jubes. You may find this and all my shows at stanfordhispanicbroadcasting.org. This is a bilingual cultural show, bringing you a window to the Latin and Hispanic universe. Every week, for two hours, one in English and one in Spanish, from Stanford to the world. You can also be part of this, leaving me your comments, sharing your thoughts, and even more at stanfordhispanicbroadcasting.org. I invite you to be part of this. And the topic today is the Nepo One Sensing Project. And for that, we're talking with Dr. Belinda Flores, Dr. Lorena Clay, and Dr. Linda Prieto from the University of Texas at San Antonio. What are the plans to expand your project? Uh, I know that you're already in Mexico, you are already in San Antonio, and you are starting to try here around Stanford in the Bay Area. There are still small groups. Uh, are you planning to try to study these small groups in depth, or you are trying to expand? Uh, you are trying to take it to the new kids, new new areas? What are the plans now? Our plans are to share all this uh, sacred knowledge uh, with everyone. But uh, here specifically in San Antonio, we went from five five clubs uh, last year to 11 clubs this coming academic uh, year. Uh, Now in uh, California, we have a colleague from uh, San Diego, uh, UC San Diego, uh, Olga Vasquez. She has uh, La Clase Magica, which is another informal learning club 
and uh, she she has had that club uh, for the past uh, 25, 26 years. So now uh, she's been uh, learning uh, about the Nepal Sinsing, the methodology, the uh, philosophy, and they're looking at integrating uh, the Nepal projects in La Plata Magica, uh, yeah, uh, over there in California. There's uh, a couple of people uh, that have expressed interest from Chicago, and uh, recently we had global lead conference here in San Antonio. We had ministers of education from uh, Costa Rica, Honduras, Guatemala, and they all express uh, an interest. So we'll be working with our colleague, Everardo uh, Lara Gonzalez, uh, to continue to promote the Nepal World Sensing Project. Well, all luck in the world. We hope to see more of this. And if everybody wants to learn a little bit about this, you can see photos and uh, find some very interesting links in, in our website, stanfordhispanicbroadcasting.org. Thank you very much for being here with us and for telling us, introducing to this new world of education and all this very interesting project. Thank you so much, Isa, for having us today. Thank you. And this was Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. Stanford, 90.1 FM. Radio Atenea Americana. A window to the Latin universe. This is Radio Atenea Americana. Bilingual house of culture. On the air and online. Su casa de la cultura en la radio y online. Para Radio 90.1 KCSU Stanford. I am Isabel Juves. Isabel Juves. Vuelve pronto. Atenea Americana. From Stanford to the world. Remember to come back soon. Ciao. See you later.